0: So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and um, let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Father God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We praise you that you speak and that this morning we can hear your voice. And we pray that you would guide us in a a world which is often full of pain and suffering, fullness and sin, not least because of our own actions and our own sin and weakness and failures. Would you change us on the inside by your Holy Spirit? Would you enable us to trust in Jesus? Would you enable us to walk in the steps that you have created in advance for us to walk in? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 4, as we come to, uh, nearly towards the end of this, service, uh, this um, uh, series over the next couple of weeks, last week, uh, Chris opened up the second half of chapter 3 in this letter, and he helps us to see Jesus in the present tense. Jesus isn't just a historical figure a great guru from the past whose teachings we can benefit from today and he's not just wishful thinking for the future, he's alive here and now. He's in heaven. Though we cannot see him, we love him, Peter puts it at the beginning of his letter. Jesus has suffered, he has died He has risen, and so he has conquered all of God's enemies. And now today, as we struggle on in a fallen world and in the face of our sin and in the face of opposition, persecution, suffering, difficulty, we can know that uh, he is there with us. He is our victorious king, and we can know him personally that, that uh, present tense of knowing Jesus today can sometimes be missing from people's experience of Christian faith. But, but, but we know, don't we, Christianity isn't just believing a bunch of theoretical facts about the past. It's knowing somebody here and now. And in this section of his letter, Peter is focusing on helping his readers deal with the reality of suffering and injustice in their lives. What does it mean to know Jesus here and now as we deal with suffering and and injustice in the world around us? And in particular, what does it mean when we experience injustice and suffering while we're trying to do what is right? That's his particular concern here. We've heard this challenge in the previous chapters to submit to the ruling authorities, to be known for doing good and how that applies in various other settings as well, in the home and the workplace. But What if living in that way actually makes life worse and not better? That's the issue um, Peter's thinking about. There have been stories, even in this season with coronavirus, for example, of of Christians refusing to go along with an employer who who wants to furlough them whilst uh, asking them to continue working at home. You know, what's the harm? The employer says no one's going to know. It's going to help the company. It may even save your job. But the Christian says, no, that's dishonest. I won't do that. And lo and behold, they're top of the list for redundancy. Or, or, or maybe at school, a young person, maybe uh, you know, now or in the past, it's, it's become clear that you know, this, this Christian young person is unwilling to join in with malicious, nasty ganging up on somebody behind their back. And what does this Christian young person find? Oh, no, look, they too are excluded by people they thought were their friends. Or uh, maybe a Christian wants to stand up on social media for the positive values of marriage and faithfulness and God's view of sex and relationships and defend it as a positive thing. And they find they're torn apart, they're vilified, they're dismissed as outdated and bigoted by a culture that, 20 minutes ago, would have agreed that these were good things. Peter's focus last time was on belief. People are going to think you are crazy for what you believe about Jesus, so don't be surprised, don't be afraid, be ready to give a response, he said back in uh, verse 15 and 16 in chapter 3. Trust Jesus, who is presently reigning victoriously over his enemies, who he's already conquered. But now the focus shifts from belief to behavior. So it's not how on earth can you Christians believe these things, you know, you're crazy to believe these things. No, why don't you join us, you Christians? Why do you have to be so different in the way you live your life? And to help with the pressure that Christians feel on their behavior, Peter now changes the tense, as it were. It was present tense in the previous verses, now we shift from present tense to future tense. And we'll see that in the backgrounds here in these verses, particularly in the central verses, verses five, six, and seven in in this reading. And they unlock the motivation for living differently, even while others heap abuse on you and tell you how crazy you are for living differently. So there are two main things to see. This divides naturally into these two paragraphs, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 11, um, as Christians feel the pressure to conform to the world around us in our behaviour. Here's the first thing from from verses 1 to 6. Be willing to suffer rather than sin. Be willing to suffer rather than sin. So let me ask you this, are there things that you're willing to suffer for? Human beings on the whole are hardwired to prefer to avoid suffering where we can, I think, aren't we? So um, Eddie Izzard does a a fairly well-known sketch where he reimagines the Spanish Inquisition taking place within the Church of England. You can imagine that. And he imagines the Inquisitors demanding of their victims, do you choose cake or death? Now, on the whole, we want cake in those terms, don't we? We choose cake, not death. That is human nature, but of course, there are times when it's recognized that actually, in some form, suffering can be worth it. And, and we applaud those who lay down their lives for others, who risk their own health for others. We've seen that with many NHS staff over the last few months. And uh, in other ways, we, we do recognize, don't we, that the, the suffering of a 5K jog or a 20-mile cycle ride, it's worth it. We we, we managed to tell ourselves. And and Peter's point here is that Jesus's route to his present reign as victorious king and his route to his future return that he talks about in these verses, that that the road he traveled went via suffering. And we've seen this throughout the letter and, and we heard it echoed in the first reading, what is true of Jesus is true of his people. Big thing to see. What does Jesus say? His road to glory went via suffering, and Peter's helping his readers now to understand that that's going to be the case. Even as people heap abuse on you for refusing to join in their sin, the road to glory is via suffering. Be willing to suffer rather than sin. So look at look at how this. He says this in verse one. Let me read this again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So wh- wh- what was he saying? He's saying when we become a Christian, everything changes. We stop living for ourselves. We start living for God. We hand the keys of the car over to him and we let him drive. We make a clean break with the past. And, and Peter is saying, as you do that, take Jesus as your example in that. Now, that might sound a little bit strange because surely Jesus himself didn't have any sin that he needed to make a clean break with. But the, Peter's point is Jesus's death was a once for all victory over sin and he was willing to suffer in that once for all way rather than sin by failing to carry out his father's will and now a sinner needs to adopt the same attitude it's not that we never sin now as Christians we never you know do things which are more about walking away from God than walking towards him that that, that's clear from so many different things the New Testament says about the Christian life but the point is we've made a clean break with living for ourselves We're no longer walking away from God. We are we've turned. And we're walking back towards Him, even if we still feel the pull in the other direction at different times. In 1519, Hernando Cortez sailed his fleet of 11 ships into the harbor of Vera Cruz, and he'd come with 600 men to defeat Montezuma and claim the riches of the Aztecs. Now, usually they would leave people to guard the ships because they, they might be needed to return later to the old world for supplies or to retreat from the enemy. But Cortez came for victory, and so he gave the order to burn the boats. And so the boats were burned, all 11 of them. And that's the sort of ruthlessness Peter is calling for yeah, a commitment to leaving our old lives of sin behind, burning our boats and living new lives with God in charge. You know, think what that means. It means sometimes there are practical things you can do to shut off the possibility of sin in your life. We, we, we sort of like to keep things, you know, open-ended, um, but that's why sometimes Christians find it helpful to get somebody else to set the password on their computer or whatever. That, that allows them to, to, um, uh, to, to change the settings on the inside, or something like that, that stops them looking at things on, online that they know they shouldn't be looking at. That's about making a clean break with sin. And there may be many other ways that we uh, can do that, give up a, uh, a subscription to something, or wh- whatever it might be. But the question then is, why is all this ruthlessness necessary? And Peter goes on in verses three and four. Have a look at that. Verse three, the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now here is that image again of a pool, uh, a swimming pool. You know, We talked about a few weeks ago, um, if you were here this flood of debauchery. this this kind of thing of, come and join us here. Come and, come and plunge into this with us, he's saying. The, 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 the people around them, the non-Christian culture around them is saying, come and join us here. It's safe. It's fun. You won't drown. But the Christian knows there are dangerous currents that are going to pull you under at any time. Now, some of this description in verses three and four sounds uh, pretty contemporary, actually, doesn't it? You know, and sometimes for Christians, it is literally like this. Um, and, and, and people, you know, I, I, can, I can remember times as a teenager and later as a student at university. And, uh, you know, you would literally be, be ridiculed and mocked for refusing to join in a drinking game or refusing to look at porn or whatever it might be. Later on in life, I guess the way this works can become a little bit more subtle because people aren't quite so sort of uh, blatant about it always, but it's like a frog in a pot of water that's being slowly boiled. It's not always easy to see how we're being taken in by the values of the culture around us instead of following Jesus. But even having said that, people still often spot when Christians are different, and it can be quite subtle. Parents might experience this in the, in the decisions we make about our children. You know, well, what, what do you mean you won't let them watch that? It's nothing wrong with that programme. What do you mean you won't give them a, a mobile phone? What do you mean you limit their internet access? Are you, are you crazy? Or, or, or it might be seen in the decisions that Christians make with their money and their time. You know, while their colleagues are ensuring that they've got the best houses and the best cars and the best holidays that they can afford... Actually, the Christians got other priorities, and might well live a, a simpler and less impressive life, and actually, their colleagues have noticed, and they quietly mock and snigger. But whether the, the suffering that comes is open and obvious or whether it's hidden and subtle, suffering, Peter is saying, is a sign of somebody who is done with sin. They're not living for evil human desires, but for the will of of God. But okay then, why still do we need to make this clean break? Well, Peter explains verses five and six. It's because of that future tense, because of God's future judgments. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's point is that our standard perspective on life is one of a, you know, a normal human lifespan followed by death. That's how we think of life. But he's saying, you've got to realize death is not the end. Get that future perspective that goes beyond the grave. Because that's the only thing that can help you live differently and withstand the mockery now. Because one day, it won't be what other people think of you that counts. It will be what God thinks of you. And only those who believe the good news about Jesus will be saved. That is what verse 6 is about. Can you see that? This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And the point is not that there's been some kind of gospel preached to dead people, as if that's possible, but those who have died have had the gospel preached to them. And why does Peter say this? It's because... Peter's readers might reasonably be saying, okay, you're saying, Peter, that we've got to suffer, but some people have then lost their lives because they've been willing to suffer. And surely that's ridiculous. Surely that's, you know, the, the sign of kind of radical stupidity. Surely then they've lost, if they've lost their lives. You know, isn't it better just to enjoy life now while you have it, if you, you know, if you can? No, Peter is saying, look, no, they... Those who who you know who've lost their lives and died believing in Jesus, they are alive now in the realm of the Spirit. And that is why the gospel was preached to them, so that not even death could harm them. That is the confidence the Christian can have. So be willing to suffer rather than sin. Put up with mockery and feeling different and sticking out, because one day the King will return. And then he goes on, verses seven to 11, the second and last thing to see. Prioritize praying, loving, and serving. As we deal with this, uh, the, the battle in the world, the, the people around us calling us to join them in their behavior, and we're saying no. Peter's saying prioritize praying, loving and serving. He's it's, it's turned from a more negative application of, of suffering rather than sinning to a positive one. Fill your life with praying, loving and serving. It's striking that when we're under pressure, I don't know whether you find this, I certainly do, it is precisely these things that get forgotten when we're under pressure and suffering, praying, loving and serving because we cut to what we consider the basics, the most important things and in one sense of course that's just understandable. It's it's how life goes. But Peter's point is, these things are the bread and butter of Christian living. You know, uh, Maslow needs to redo his pyramid, if you're familiar with that, his hierarchy of needs, and put these things at the top, along with breathing and food and drink and shelter, praying, loving and serving. Now, there may be a, a touch of autobiography about this from Peter, because he came to a point in his life where he could not pray, but he slept as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a point where his love for his master gave way to fear, where rather than being a faithful servant of Jesus, he served himself and he fled. So look at verse seven, the, the, the thought of Jesus's return is uh, in judgment is still the context. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I think most Christians struggle in one way or another with prayer. We find it hard to concentrate, we find it hard to know what to pray for, and it's easy to feel, you know, I I just don't have that kind of faith which can make me a really serious prayer. But Peter's point is that effective prayer is not about the quality of our faith, but the quality of our life. Self-control and sober-mindedness are the opposite of those things that he, he mentions in verse 3. See, if your mind is fixed on satisfying your own sinful desires or on worshipping the idols of money or power or comfort or academic success, actually, it won't be easy to focus on God in prayer, will it? Because our minds and our hearts are just full of me and what I want and my plans and my ambition for the future. So, so learning to pray doesn't mean sort of just finding a new technique that you'd never heard before, or figuring out a new set of words to use. Actually, it starts with just enjoying who Jesus is and what he's done, filling our minds and our lives with him. And of course, actually, when you think about it, that in itself is a daily struggle and battle. So, so often we expect it ought to be easy, to pray. And it ought to be easy to live as a Christian. And then when we find that it's hard, we think, well, you know, I, 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 I must be the guy who, who does it wrong. And, 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 you know, I'm just not very good at it. And I look around and see all my brothers and sisters and they're just, they're just so great at it, but, but not me. And we give up. But actually, it's often said the Christian life isn't one of inner peace. It's one of inner battle. Battling to say no to our own desires. And yes, to God's desires in our minds and our hearts. And out of that battle, as it, as it goes on in our hearts and our lives, a battle to pray will follow. So keep pray, prayer at the heart of things. And then verses eight and nine are about how we love one another. And in particular, he talks about forgiveness and friendship. You know, imagine a church where some of its members, because they're under pressure, had given in to what Peter describes in verse 3. It would be easy for everyone else to act only in condemnation and self-righteousness, you know, to kind of give the cold shoulder to those who had given in to the culture around them and, uh, in some obvious way, to stop welcoming these people into their homes. But the love God has shown us is a forgiving love, and that's the love that we need to show each other of Another chance, a fresh start, moving on. Now, hospitality, as he highlights here, in, in you know during COVID nineteen, is a pretty difficult thing to get our heads around, isn't it? But it's it's about sharing our lives and realizing we need each other more than ever. And uh, you know, often there are creative ways of doing that that, that don't involve the sort of traditional. Having a load of people in your house, which may not be the safest thing we can do, although maybe we're we're getting to the point where that's more possible than before. But that's why um, Peter then encourages these Christians to keep serving, because we need each other. So in the in the final verses, uh, not just serving ourselves and our own interests, but those of people around us. And and I think these things are more relevant than ever for us as a church as we emerge from lockdown, or we begin to emerge. From lockdown because amongst us we have people who think that we're going too fast and the government is being crazy and 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 we really shouldn't be doing it like this and we've got others amongst us who think we're going too slowly as we consider the issues around meeting again and and what that looks like and we've got some amongst us with time and resources to spare and we've got others who are still utterly stretched and exhausted by the last few months with great fear about what might lie ahead. So committing to serve one another, committing to meeting together matters more than ever, but meeting online, meeting in small groups, meeting one-to-one, meeting in the church building as that becomes possible and where it can be done safely. All of these are different ways in which we can find opportunities to serve one another, and, and maybe even in new ways that we have never thought of before in this new season. None of these things are things that uh, that come uh, easily to us when we're under pressure. But there's a a little parable, it's not from the Bible, but it's about how the, the sun and the wind had a wager on who could get a man to take off his coat. And the wind said, I'm so much more powerful than you, I can blow trees down, I can destroy houses, I can turn cars upside down. You, Mr. Sun, you can't do any of that, you've got no power. And so he blows harder and harder to get this man to take his coat off, but the man responds by pulling his coat tighter and tighter against the wind, and it won't come off. And then it's the turn of the sun, and the sun simply shines and warms the man with its rays. And the man immediately relaxes and finally removes his coat as he gets too hot. And sometimes we try and motivate ourselves to action simply by blowing harder like the wind. Come on, pray more, love more, serve more. And all that happens is we double down on the inside, and we resist more and more. And and when we're suffering, we we think, I'm losing everything, it's all out of control, who will care for me? And we pull the coat tighter around us in fear. But what we need is to experience the warmth of God's love in Jesus and the promise of his future return. And that will warm us, that will change us. And so that we'll remove that heavy coat and we will start praying and loving and serving. So the pressure is on for Christians. We face a challenge every single day in and out of lockdown through highs and lows and joys and sorrows. Are we going to go God's way or are we going to fit in with the world around us? Going God's way will often make life more difficult. It will be challenging. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Because of that future tense, Jesus is coming back. There will be a day of judgment for those who ignore him. There will be a day when those who trust him get to see him face to face. So for now, rather than turning in on ourselves and just trying to cope and keep going, let's keep encouraging each other, being willing to suffer rather than sin and prioritizing praying and loving and serving. Let me pray now. Father God thank you for these words that challenge us and challenge our assumptions and our priorities and the way we live our daily lives father would we genuinely be willing to suffer rather than sin and would we would our lives be marked more and more by prayer and by love and by serving looking beyond ourselves into our church family and into the world around us so that in everything you may be glorified through Jesus Christ as you give us your strength to do that to you be glory and dominion forever and ever amen